Welcome back to Knife at the Gunfight. I'm here uh, with an interview with one of the Baltimore Ceasefire Ambassadors, uh, David Johnson, who's currently with the Jordan McNair Foundation, uh, working to prevent injury from heat-related illness, but also has a wealth of experience working with uh, the youth of Baltimore and against uh, violence. So uh, we've been sitting on this for a little while because of other obligations, but I think is an important part of this ceasefire series, getting to know the peacemakers in Baltimore. Uh, so enjoy. Said I knew my time was coming even when I was struggling, had to wait for it. Stayed on my grind from the winter to the summer, doing numbers, hustling faithfully. So uh, welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm here with uh, a good friend, uh, David Johnson, one of the uh, Baltimore Ceasefire Ambassadors. Uh, David, how are you doing? I'm great. Good, good to see you, sir. It's been a minute. And and um, I want to take a moment and uh, get to know you uh, for um, for myself, but also for the audience. Um, and you correct me where I get anything wrong. Uh, but first, we're from Baltimore, so one of the early questions is, where did you go to high school? I went to Carver Vocational Technical. Sorry, and, let me get it right. George Washington Carver Vocational Technical High School. I gotta say it right. You uh, you ran track, didn't you? You track runner. Yeah. Um. In fact, I got a couple. I think they're in arm's reach. Yeah. At the time, like my my uh my track coach, who eventually became my track coach, he saw me like in the cafeteria, like jumping up and touching the ceiling. So he recruited me for high jump. I had no idea I was going to run track. I only did it for conditioning because I thought I was going to be like the next Deion Sanders. As it turned out, I was a pretty good track runner. So my senior year, we won state in our class uh, in the 4 by 400 meter relay. Oh, excellent. And I didn't know that. In that same year, we placed third in our heat at Penn Relays. There's a story wow. that I could tell about that that I don't want to talk about right now because I have to take the peace challenge again. But um. <laughs> Yeah, we could have we could have won that too, and, and come home with the plaque next year. The guys came home with the plaque, so I was a little disappointed. I'd and, and we'll have to catch up on that. the The reason yeah. the reason that I bring it up, I was um, a freshman at Poly. Uh, I ran cross country. Then the next year, I ran track. When I think uh, what was his name Bernard Williams graduated, who went to the yeah. Olympics. He was a Carver graduate. Bernard, he uh, he came out. Of, he was a couple years under me. Um, I think at the time when I was a senior, he might have been a sophomore. So you were his mentor. Great guy, just great talent. Um, you know, some things happened that I wish hadn't, but uh, all the same, it's a great story. You know, we had a guy from the NFL, a couple guys from the NFL, actually coming out of our school, and uh, we got uh, an Olympic an Olympian. So pretty cool to be able to see that. You know, right? So, you, so you come out of that that um, that moment in 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 Baltimore high school sports and. Now you kind of full circle. You still kind of work in uh, with youth and with recreation and sports. Yeah. What are you doing yeah, so now? now? Currently, um, so I was running the middle school sports programs for uh, seven years prior to last year. Um, when COVID hit, it kind of shut things down for like in-person uh, engagement as far as, you know, sports went with, with the kids. And so the nonprofit I was working for, unfortunately, decided to move away and move on from sport. It just, you know, it was tough. Um, with all the restrictions and everything. And it was something that they really weren't excited. The board wasn't excited about funding initially anyway. It kind of was birthed out of a need from wrecking parks for some additional programming for kids. But I'm glad to say that, you know, for 30 plus years, we were able to provide it for middle school youth. Hopefully we'll be able to come up with something else. But now I'm currently working for the Jordan McNair Foundation. Um, 
I don't know if folks know the story, but Joy McNair, um, he's the son of a friend of mine, actually, uh, was an offensive lineman at University of Maryland, and he died of heat stroke back in 2018. Um, so now, really, what we do is we preach prevention. Uh, we definitely, you know, talk to coaches, parents, and athletes about the signs, symptoms, um, and dangers of heat-related illnesses and how to guard against them because this is a 100% preventable injury um, or death anyway. Like, people will get a heat stroke, but mismanaged heat strokes are really, you know, what are unfortunate because they can be prevented, uh, the death portion of it anyway, if you, if you, you know, follow the right protocol. Right, and, and people that, that study that look after that, you know, it's like a lot of things. If you don't recognize the problem and you wait until it gets irreversible, and I think, you know, from what's been released about Jordan McNair, that's kind of what happened. There was an opportunity that was missed. Um, and so I appreciate, you know, you looking out for um, young people, I think too often in sports, um, especially you get up to the higher levels, especially Division One college athletics, there's a lot of money to be made. And sometimes right. young people uh, aren't benefiting from that the way they should be. The safety portion or the safety aspect is, you know, it's not prioritized as it should be. Um, I will commend the state of Maryland for being one of the only, being the only state. I don't know if it's still currently uh, the case, but we were the only state um, as of last summer to have notable provisions for player safety as well as NIL uh, placed in our on our book. So kudos to Maryland, um, something we're doing right. And we do a lot of things right. You know, uh, not not a, you know, popular belief, but I think that there are things that could be highlighted a bit more about Baltimore in particular that that are going well, that um, are making change and impact that don't get the attention that they should. So I'm glad to have this opportunity today. And and you and I spoke not too long ago. There was an on the field death in um, in high school football in Baltimore in the last year, actually at the, my high school field at Poly, where uh, yep. where where I used to work out, even though it was a, a Mervo player. Um, and I don't yeah. know. If- We're actually working with the family now to get some legislation passed on the high school level here. Um, and that young man's name. Just a really unfortunate situation. But you know, hopefully, we don't have to pass another law or bill you know, in a dead child's name. That's the last thing that we want to do. And that's what we're trying to prevent. That's, that's the other side of the work that I do outside of the community. And, and I appreciate you, you know, doing the work, looking out for young people. Um, and I wanted to talk some of the other work that you had been doing that brought you um, into the ceasefire movement. Um, I, I, I've seen you wearing stuff with some of the other guys, Band of Brothers. And I think a yeah. three hundred men march is was that also you were involved in? Started, it started with three hundred men march. Shout out to Nathan Pop Thomas, who also was a, a student at uh, Carver Vocational Technical High School, and that's kind of where we forged our our relationship and friendship was all the way back then, twenty some odd years ago. He reached out to me. I want to say um, the winter of two thousand fourteen or two thousand thirteen about uh, three hundred men march, and. Um, I'm I'm one who kind of tries to navigate my own space when it comes to community work. And, you know, I, I've not been a part of anything. I never pledged to a fraternity, anything like that. So I went to a meeting at City Hall. And ironically enough, Erica Bridgeford, who was one of the co-organizers of Ceasefire, she spoke. And Pop was there, Nathan. Um, and also Munir, who spearheaded the 300 Men March movement. And just the tone and the energy in the room at the time compelled me to want to, you know, at least investigate more. And so I started going to some of the meetings and eventually joined 300 in March and 
the rest is history. You know, there was a lot going on during the uprising and, you know, we were on the front lines during that time. And then when 300 kind of everybody went their separate ways, Pop again reached out in response to uh, the black and missing in uh, the local area and in DC. And some of the information that we got was unfounded, but we still wanted to do community work. So we started, uh, you know, helping to feed people experiencing homelessness, um, working with squeezy youth. And, you know, it just seemed like ceasefire was like a natural fit. Erica was running ceasefire. They put out uh, an email about, you know, folks who wanted to become ambassadors to join. So I think I was a part of that uh, first class of ambassadors um, and just really wanted to help to spread the message, uh, really just to celebrate life, you know, as opposed to, uh, you know, resorting to conflict to resolve our issues. So. Um, I've been a part of that movement for a while now, and I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, that's one of the things that I can hang my hat on. And uh, you just said a lot, and maybe there's a lot that could, you know, go into. Um, you talked about being on the front lines during the uprising, trying to work towards peace, uh, working to feed uh, hungry and homeless and working with squeegee youth. Is there anything more like with the with the squeegee workers, any of that work that you want to talk about a little bit more, what that looked like? We got to know some of them very intimately. So what we would do when we engaged, we would go actually to them. We'd go to the corner and we'd just speak to them. You know, we weren't trying to discourage them from doing what they were doing. We did give them some knowledge and some information around, you know, customer service and just the fact that this type of situation wasn't sustainable. So, you know, sell waters, you know, um, be polite and courteous to the motorists. You know, like no one owes us anything. So we would spread that message. We'd give them snacks. And we plan to do more. Um, things just didn't come to fruition, unfortunately. And hopefully we can get back to some of the things that we intended to do. But, um, you know, we just tried to encourage them and then give them some knowledge around how to interact with folks. Because, you know, everybody's not going to be pleasant. You know, everybody doesn't need your services. People have windshield wipers. So you got to sell yourself. So that was one of the things that, you know, I tried to encourage the youth that we engaged. And we also we got them some shirts, you know, to look a bit more professional. So. I, I, I was going to say, gonna say yeah. I did notice over a year or two a change in the tone of a lot of the squeegee workers. I'm hoping um, that may have had something to do with our engagement, but we got them some shirts, a few of them, and it said squeegee entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> just to kind of identify who they were, you know, it's not just as a brand, brand yeah, for sure. walking up to your car. You know, this is somebody who is actually trying to make a way for themselves. And this is right now the best way they know how to do it. So, you know, just trying to give them some pointers. I, I hope to do something more concrete uh, in, in the future, but. You know, I feel like what we did was somewhat impactful. and I'm glad to hear that the interactions improved. Well, I, I just, you know, this, the squeegee is such a loaded term in Baltimore. It's kind of crazy. Um, yeah. And I know even like D. Watkins talk about how he used to do the squeegee hustle at some point in his life. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, like I've seen some of the squeegee workers have like um, cash app or other kind of things. So they clean your window. You don't have money. It's cool. Here's my card. Cash app if you want. Right. Um, yeah. Or doing... Doing the little heart thing on the window and like uh, if there's an accident, just stopping what they're doing and helping direct traffic. There's several times where they've. Um, so I wonder if that interaction with them kind of resonated with some of them. I hope so. I, I'd like to I'd like to say this, too. I think some of them already were of that mindset and some of them already were doing those things. I think that what happens is we have incidences, isolated incidences where there's a bad interaction. And this is with anything, not just to squeeze you, but. Everybody gets grouped and classed together based on that one incident. And I feel like that's a microcosm of what happens here in Baltimore. Yes, there are many homicides and they're very unfortunate, but there's so many folks out here, so many different organizations 
who are trying their best and their hardest every day to combat, you know, but that doesn't get the attention it should. So I'm glad to be on Knife to a Gunfight. I'm glad to be here with you and have this opportunity to shed some light on, you know, some of these great things that are happening around town. And uh, you had mentioned that there's becoming a ceasefire ambassador. I think you and I met as part of that first class and became kind of fast friends over, um, I think we talked a little bit about uh, high school track at that time. And you had some interesting stories like about um, being, bringing, uh, um, what's his name, Adam Jones to um, some Baltimore yeah. baseball playing high school yeah, students and things. That's one of the highlights of, of my uh, Parks and People career. Um, you know, a lot of things just kind of came together. And that's one of the things that I've been fortunate in that, you know, the relationships that I've built over the years have yielded a lot of positive results. Um, not just for me personally, but that was uh, Dick Sporting Goods. Shout out to Dick Sporting Goods. Um, they were doing a campaign called Sporting for Good. And, you know, we were just trying to raise some funds for the baseball league. Um, shout out to anybody that is coaching youth baseball in Baltimore City. I know it's rough to recruit and to retain. Um, I really wish there was more I could have done to, to help keep that program going on the middle school level, but hopefully somebody picks up the mantle. But yeah, Dix, they, uh, I think they reached out. They set up a day where, you know, all these different youth programs could come down to Utsfield um, and Patterson Park and bring the teams out. And at the last minute, like they were like, well, and I wanna, I wanna say her name was, well, I cannot remember, but she was great the entire time, wherever it was I worked with. Shout out to you. I'm sorry, I can't remember your name at the moment. But like, she's like, oh yeah, um, one of the O's might show up as a surprise. And it just so happened it was Adam Jones. And he's like one of the greatest people you ever want to meet. He was joking with the kids and like snapping on them and they were snapping back and we were doing photos and he was doing autographs. It was just a, a fantastic day, a day I'll never forget. And I'm sure those kids won't even. Yeah, and and Adam Jones, he's originally from San Diego. He's not not right. not a Baltimore guy, but Baltimore really loves him. And and, and I was and like, you would think he was from him. Yeah, and and the O's, I, I think they kind of did him wrong. Um, he yeah. ended up going to uh to Japan. He went and, to Arizona. Well, he went to Arizona and then he, and then Japan. And um, right. I I will say he said the way that he would come back to Baltimore is that is as a coach. So I hope someone at the Orioles is wow. paying attention. Get him on the horn, man. We need so more Adam Joneses in Baltimore. The, the, right, the city still loves him, and he showed love to the city, so we'd love to have him back. But that's neither here nor there, um, but shout out to, Aaron, to Adam Jones as well. But I wanted to ask, so uh, since then, what is kind of what has that meant to you, being an ambassador for the Baltimore ceasefire? What does that work look like? It's like a badge of honor um, to be able to just, you know, share the message with people. Um, I, and, and, you know, I, I share it with whomever will listen, um, you know, it's just about us being able to, to, to be more connected. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, I have to come over for dinner. Or, but if I see you on the street, it's okay to speak. You know, we don't have to have this chip on our shoulder or have this fear. And that's one of the things that did for me. It, it, it helped me to look at, I think 300 as well as the ceasefire helped me to look at those that might be labeled as uh, disruptors or, you know, the violence agitators differently. Like it, it caused me to have more compassion for everyone, not just those who were victims, but those who actually inflicted violence because that stems from something else. So instead of just looking at the scar, getting to the bottom of how it got, and I don't have deep conversations with folks, but I at least look at things more holistically where, you know, let's be solution oriented and try to figure out what is the root cause. And we know the root cause a lot of times, 
It's just how do we, and that's why we got involved with the sweet kids. Like sweet kids are out here trying to provide sometimes just a meal for themselves and, and their siblings. And when they get rejected, they don't know how to respond. So that's why we engage them. So similar to the ceasefire, we're just talking to young people, you know, it's 300 work, getting out in the community and like talking to people. We can talk about people all day. And I think that's what happens in the media a lot. Is they talk about the issues, they talk about the people, but they don't talk about how to come to a resolution. How do we fix those? Things? They can highlight all the things that are wrong, but the folks with the boots on the ground, ceasefire and the like, you know, we're actually out here getting in the community and figuring out what those issues are and actually trying to address them. Um, living in Baltimore at that time, I was um, a trauma and critical care fellow at Hopkins. What I felt like it offered for me is that when I reached out to people that I could say, you know, I was from ceasefire, um, you know, uh, people gave me a moment, you know, they let me into a space without necessarily judging that background that, you know, right. right I remember right when I moved to Baltimore, um, one of the trauma surgeons from Hopkins had, had, was invited, I think by the police or someone by a city councilman to speak in front of, um, the Baltimore city council about happened to be, I think a mandatory minimums bill related to gun possession. Uh, and whoever was organizing thing moved him to the front of the line of a lot of people who are waiting to speak. Um, and he was a well-known, well-meaning person, very effective, but not from around here. And people saw, even though he's not actually really a white guy, he came off as, you know, the white doctor from Hopkins cutting in line and it blew up. People got upset. And I just felt like now when I going through the ceasefire movement, becoming an ambassador, and then when I go into a space and when I reach out to somebody, it's very different. You know, nobody jumps to any conclusion, I think. It's kind of, okay, Erica and them vetted him. So what do you have to He's say? Okay. What Not necessarily that I'm okay, but it's like, okay, let me hear what you have to say first before I decide right. whether or not you're okay. Yeah. But, but one of the things I will say, though, Si, is in that space, there wasn't any judgment. And if you were in that space, you were there for a reason. So before you even got to the training, you had to be vetted. So, and I, I'm, I'm one who, I'm not going to prejudge anything. I treat people with face value. What you give me, I'm going to give you in return. And I, I'm probably going to give you, you know, the best of me anyway, until you give me reason not to. But I didn't have one inkling that you didn't belong in that room. Mm. Not one. You know what I mean? And that's just the way, and I think ceasefire helps to break down some of those barriers anyway. Look at the diversity of the ambassador group. You got people from all over. You got people in all different, you know, backgrounds as far as employment, you know, all different diverse communities. So it's really a microcosm of what the city should be. You know, if you look at the breakdown of the ambassadors and the organizers and co-organizers, like that's what Baltimore really is. If you think about it, it's just, it doesn't get the attention. The attention goes to the problem. And as long as you focus on the problem and not addressing the problem, there's always going to be a problem until you properly address it. And we know that there's some that don't even want to see that happen, but we're the ones that come against that. And, and I'll give all credit to the, um, especially the squad, but I think everybody that rolls with ceasefire, I always feel like it should be, I always feel like it should be many more people than it is, but you know, all that work, they have a lot of emotional intelligence. And like you said, they're trying to create the Baltimore they want to see, you know, one one crew at a time, one crew of ambassadors or, or whatever, youth ambassadors or one. And uh, to your point though, it takes emotional intelligence to be able to say, okay, let's call a ceasefire. It's not going to be just quarterly, it's 365, which people need to understand. 
and people are going to die. Doesn't mean that we weren't a success. You know, and I think that that, that kind of prohibits some people from maybe jumping on board or I don't know. I don't, I really can't say, I can only speak for me, you know, and these are some of the thoughts that I have, but I feel like we've been wildly successful and the data proves it on the weekends that we had. But I think that that's something that we have to do a bit more to make known is that it's just not about those four weekends. This is about a mindset. I take this uh, the peace challenge every day intentionally. Sometimes I feel like I'm the only one and sometimes I know I'm the only one that's taking it. And so I would encourage folks because it, it, it's a mindset. Peace is a mindset. It's not just, you know, what you say, you know, it's not what you do necessarily, but it's how you live. And, and that's what I try to embody as a ceasefire ambassador and just as a human being on a day-to-day basis. The world that I want to see, I try to project that. Right. And, and you know, we had talked a little bit earlier about kind of the difference in the moment now compared to um, early days of, of ceasefire that first year, even two. And you talked about the data and, and we, you know, we had a, a, a paper in the American Journal of Public Health that uh, data analysis that showed the shootings were down about 50 percent during those ceasefire weekends compared to other weekends. Um, and it felt wildly successful at first, even if there wasn't, you know, huge crowds in the street. Although th- there were at times, I know there was at least once when there was a uh, family or friend of one of the squad members who was killed. And it was like hundreds of people out in West Baltimore um, at, at the sacred space to, to, to show support. Um, it, what reminded me of that is there was um, just in the last month, there was a restaurateur um, from Little Italy who was killed. And the scene there, very different group of people, but also kind of a, a similar kind of energy that I wish every time somebody was killed, hundreds of people showed up to support the family and, and, and to, to let the community know that this wasn't going to be tolerated. Um, but this moment now is, I think, very difficult. It's much harder to see how effective the, you know, I spoke to, um, Latrice, one of the, Latrice, one of the, um, squad members about the last ceasefire weekend. It was the most people killed since any weekend of the ceasefire since it started. And that energy has continued in January. So what does that, what does that look like to you? What does that, what is our role in this moment? Um, is to continue to be consistent and do what we've been doing and celebrate life and encourage others to celebrate life. I think that that's what gets lost a lot of times, even when there's just one homicide, you know, during those weekends, like it's really to celebrate life, um, you know, and I, I don't want to diminish the magnitude of these murders or deaths, but we have to celebrate life. We celebrate, when we do the sacred space rituals, we're celebrating their life. We're sending them with light and love into their next phase. And I think that that's something that we really have to emphasize is really focusing on celebrating life, whether it was a life lived or a life continuing, our lives and those around us and those who have to carry on, you know, just kind of encouraging them and showing them ways where they can or, or just being examples on how to celebrate life. Um, and that, that's the difficult part of dealing with grief. It's something that I've had to grapple with on eight or nine occasions in the last year or so. So I've been kind of quiet and behind the scenes intentionally just kind of trying to learn how to grieve properly you know like losing a parent and losing you know a coach and mentor my track coach and losing close friends not the violence but just losing you know what I mean so now I've learned to kind of celebrate life you know and appreciate the time that I did have with those people and try and in some way take a part of them instill it in me and then project that into the world um so it's while it's discouraging to see the numbers um it doesn't 
diminish in any way the work I think that we've done and the impact that we continue to have. So I'm just the uh, ultimate optimist. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, hey, I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, what we need in this moment is both realism and optimism. Um, we need to be able to assess the situation with honesty and then bring, you know, uh, you know, that, that is kind of a corny phrase, that audacity of hope, but it resonated with people. That's why Obama was able to win because the, the, uh, the mythology he created really re resonated with people. It's an attitude. Like if, if you walk around uh, in a state of despair, you're going to you're going to spread it. And it, it's energy at the end of the day, you know, like energy is transferable and it's, it, it, it can't distinguish. So if let's just say you have the mindset you, you don't want for violence to be perpetuated. How about just focusing on peace? How just how about just focusing on love and trying to be that trying to embody that like that's. I mean, and it, it, it may sound cliche or sound easier said than done, but I'm very intentional about those things. And I think that's why I draw the things that I do to myself and the energies that I do to myself is because I intentionally focus on the things that I want. The things I don't want, sometimes they're gonna happen, but I don't focus on them because I don't want I don't want to give energy to that. You know, I don't want to continue to to give energy to something that I don't want to take place or I don't want in my space. And I think when we focus on the negative. We, we give that power, we give that energy, the same way we would if we focused on what's positive or the things that we want. Um, so I guess you talked a little bit about what you feel like you're called to do in this moment. Do you have a, a call to action for, for the rest of the people in the city? Man, just love on one another. And when it comes to um, any type of conflict, call up community mediation over on Greenmount. Let them you know sit down with both parties and you guys kind of hash it out. like. There is another way to resolve conflict and resolve your issues without having to resort to violence. And usually, if you go that route, um, you can kind of work things out. You might not end up best friends at the end of the day, but you get to live to see another and it won't be another grieving family. So that's just another way to resolve your issues. It doesn't always have to resort to somebody losing their life. Um, life is precious. Uh, and, you know, it, it's here today, gone tomorrow. So Value it. And then if you're valuing, valuing your life, you're going to value the life of your fellow man. You're going to value the life of your neighbor because you know how precious and fleeting it can be. So that would be my call to action. Love one another. And if you can if you can resolve your issues without resorting to violence and if you need, you know, you need help or information, reach out to ceasefire, reach out to community mediation. You know, those are two entities that I know of offhand that can help you with your issues and, and, and come to a peaceful resolution. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think my call for people is one is to show up. You know what I mean? I think that does take courage, and I think ceasefire does offer kind of an infrastructure, uh, almost what I call it a spiritual infrastructure on how you can show up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the same time, you know, each of us, whatever level you're at, or whatever wherever you stand um, in your city, your community, whatever else to take that peace challenge seriously and recognize when conflict is arising and recognize how to choose peace. Um, and like you said, I think, and this is something Lee Treese also talked about, trying to make that uh, community mediation center um, an institution that has the power to, to, to really change how conflict is handled. Um, and conflict they, they got some expert folks over there, if, if you can uh, coin it as such. Um, they, they can help you through what you're going through, I'm sure of it. Yeah, and, and um, conflict is inevitable, but interpersonal yeah. violence is 
most of it is not, you know, is not inevitable. And I've always felt like- It doesn't like, have to resort and murder. That's sure. the thing, you know. And there's, I feel like this, and I don't know how to convince people of this, and I've always thought, I guess you have to start really young. That's why I think that, you know, the work that you've talked about doing with youth is so valuable if you can get it right, that how it resonates. But there's so much value that's left on the table in the city. So much value is lost um, when young people's lives are cut short. Even just in terms, in just the crudest sense, just think about all the real estate in Baltimore. I've been living in New York. What that real estate would be worth if right. there, if the people weren't, if people weren't afraid to be there. You know, if we were able to take control of our lives, take control of our communities, and own it, there's so much value there. Um, in terms, you know, we talk about poverty and other things. There's so much opportunity, and I do think a key of it is being able to resolve conflict peacefully and be able to that assert, you know, young people assert their right to live and, and so much could be done with that. I've been fortunate in that sports was a great galvanizer. And so when we worked with youth um, in, our, in our youth leagues, they first had to do character education and we would do many games before we actually play games. And what it did is it bridged the divide between kids who normally wouldn't even interact because they lived in different communities. You know, you got Highland Town playing versus kids that live in Roman Park, or the kids from Dickey Hill, you know, they're playing kids from Southwest Baltimore Charter. So I, I'm really proud of that work. Um, and I think that, you know, my path has just led me, you know, on a trajectory where the work just, it increased as far as the impact and the magnitude on different levels. So, you know, I, I'm still, you know, doing the same thing um, with regard to self-advocacy now with, with, um, the work that I'm doing with the Jordan McNair Foundation, we started a program called COBE, which stands for Keep On Believing in Yourself. Um, and so, you know, just you know, telling young athletes, you know, if you don't feel right, speak up. If there's something a coach says or does, speak up, you know, tell your parent, tell another coach. So just empowering youth, like you said, like that's one of the ways that we can really change the trajectory of the city. Um, and I'm going to do that whatever capacity I'm working in, whatever organization. Was there anything else that that we didn't talk about that you wanted to uh, to bring up or touch on? No, man, just really good to catch up. I hope all is well with you and wife and kids up there in Kings County. Um, I definitely want to get up there. You know, I'm from Queens County, so I'm not. I'm a neighbor. I want to get up there sometime in the near future and chop it up. Maybe grab some dinner or something. You're from Queens. I didn't remember that. I lived in Queens. I'm I'm originally from Virginia, and then oh, okay. moved to Western New York when I was young. Uh, in Buffalo and then into the city for a little bit. Uh, and before I came down here, I went to middle and high. Okay, yeah. I moved to Jamaica State, so I'm now Southeast Queens. Oh, uh, yeah, so you, you... <laughs> my man, yeah. That's what's up. That's... Um, so I always like to ask people, um, you know, especially if we're talking about any kind of heavy topic to lighten it up a little bit, any kind of, any kind of book, music, art, performance, anything uh, that, that you're into you want to share with me and my audience? A lot of Coltrane and Thelonious Monk. Um, I do some Bob Marley. Um, as far as reading goes, one of the ambassadors, Joe Brown, thank you, Joe Brown, she sent me a book called How to Fight. And that really like kind of opened my eyes on my approach to just life in general. Um, That's written by a Vietnamese friend of, of uh, Martin, uh, Dr. King, right? Yeah, I believe Whose so. His name yeah. I can't remember how to pronounce. Yeah, I don't have a book right here with me, so I, I couldn't tell you either. But 
um, that's that's had a profound impact on me. And just, you know, just day to day, you know, like being mindful, you know, meditating and being mindful about like maintaining peace within myself so that when conflict does arise, I know how to properly address it and deal with it. Um, even if it's just, you know, somebody looked at me wrong or, you know, like somebody cut you off while you drive, it's anything, you know, like I, I'm, I'm very mindful of that now. I'm very grateful for the tool. Shout out to the squad for coming up with the peace challenge because it, it, it enables me and it encourages me on a daily basis to really be mindful about how I show up in the world. And I would encourage everybody else, you know, that is a ceasefire ambassador or just anybody that like, you know, really wants to help change the trajectory of what's going on in the city. Like take that peace challenge, go to, you know, www.ceasefire.com, take the peace challenge. It only takes a minute. You can also donate. Um, there's a donate button on there now, which I think is great. I got to send in my first donation because I've been slipping, but um, you got to support the causes that you're, you're involved in and a part of so they can sustain themselves and continue to grow and be impactful. And uh, one more question, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, are you a, 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 perform a performing or recording artist as well? I'm a, I'm a recording artist. Yeah, I, I actually released a new single uh, called Time. Um, you can go on iTunes and grab that. Um, I'm also on Reverb Nation and SoundCloud. And it's kind of it's kind of a, a, a story about how I was able to overcome some of the struggles. Uh, one of the friends that I lost recently too, his, his brother, he put a verse on it, um, kind of about what was going on at that time. So it's it's somewhat encouraging and sad at the same time, but I think it's it's kind of a picture of, you know, like where I've come from and where I am currently and where I'm trying to get. So time is the name of the single. Um, you can get it on iTunes. You can listen. So what's to your it on stage Spotify. name or your pen name? My my stage name is Danny Handsome, and right. there's a story right. behind that. I'll give that to you real quick. So, those of you who are a little older and saw the movie, he got game. Um, Ray Allen's cousin Booger in the movie. Uh, when they were doing interviews, he said something about he felt handsome when he had the ball, and so I quoted that to the mic. I wasn't always the most confident guy. You know, I didn't always dress the flyest, you know. But whenever I got on the mic, ever since this middle school talent show, I felt like I'm somebody, you know, I'm important. Like I can, I have a voice. So that's where Danny Hansen came from. It, it had nothing to do with appearance or anything like that. It was more about just self-affirmation for me. So Danny Hansen is the stage model. All right, David, Danny Hansen. Uh, I, I appreciate you putting aside the time and I look forward. I'll be in town. Oh man, it's been a pleasure, man. This yep. uh, February, this weekend, this first weekend of February. Uh, in yes, sir. And I look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, many blessings to you and your family, man. Thanks for right. having me, son. Right back at you. Take care, my brother. Take care. All right. Again, that was an interview with David Johnson for The Knife at the Gunfight. Uh, and the music that you heard on the intro and outro uh, was from his uh, recording uh, of David Johnson under the moniker Danny Handsome, and that song is called Time. So thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Talks from my big brother woke me up. Remember being down, but we still move like we was up. All the shit that we've been through got me feeling like why us? My brother time coming, and that shit got me fucked up. Shit, doctors to talk to, no medicine to save me. 
What about your sons? I swear this life is crazy. We've been fucked up ever since the motherfucking 80s. Niggas praying for our downfall, no praying that you make it.